Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. In this episode today, I'm going to answer a question which I was asked on my Instagram this week, which is, can the ketogenic diet be beneficial for fatigue recovery? And I'll do a little spoiler alert here, and I'll start off by saying that the short answer is yes and sometimes no. And the rest of this episode is really going to be a more long-winded answer where I talk about the nuance of using the ketogenic diet. What is it? Where it could be beneficial generally? How do you know if it's beneficial for you specifically? And then finally, if it is something that you want to implement or at least give a try, how can you begin to transition yourself towards a ketogenic approach? So let's just dive straight in. And the first thing is, what is a ketogenic diet? Well, a ketogenic diet is a high-fat, low-carb, moderate-protein diet. So there's various different opinions, I guess, on what a ketogenic diet actually is. In my personal opinion, a ketogenic diet is anything that really allows your body to achieve a state of ketosis, which we'll talk about how you can actually measure that um, a little bit later in the podcast. But roughly that could be anywhere between 25 grams of carbs to 50 grams of carbs per day. And usually when we're kind of approaching the upper limit of those carbs, that often includes carbs from fiber as well. So the ketogenic diet is really a means by which somebody can achieve nutritional ketosis, which is essentially when the liver starts to produce ketones in the absence of fuel. And most healthy people will achieve actually a mild state of ketosis overnight. So if you're doing an overnight fast, which means you're not eating anything for maybe 12, 14, 16 hours overnight, your liver may start to produce ketones and your body can use this for energy until you eat the next day. So really a ketogenic diet prolongs the benefit of the natural ketosis which we are all able to access. And if we are prolonging the state of ketosis, we're prolonging the benefits which are things like increased autophagy, so autophagy is like the body's cellular waste removal. When you're not eating anything, when there's no more additional fuel coming into the body that the body has to deal with, then the cells can do their little cellular cleanup process. We can get rid of debris and waste. And this just ultimately is beneficial to have more efficient functioning cells that can produce ATP, for example, but it also can be beneficial in terms of clearing out waste products and that can help with managing inflammation. A ketogenic diet may also be associated with lower insulin levels and this can have a benefit on inflammation generally and histamine production specifically. So histamine is potentially an issue for people with fatigue, often referred to as mast cell activation syndrome. And if somebody has is producing a lot of mast cells or producing a lot of histamine, then lowering insulin levels can be potentially beneficial um, in terms of having a therapeutic benefit. With all of this in mind, 
Is a ketogenic diet appropriate for fatigue recovery? And so before I answer this question in a little bit more depth, let's just take a step back and think about what is fatigue? Fatigue is the end point of a compromised production of the body's energy currency, ATP. And there are obviously multiple different mechanisms by which the body produces ATP or multiple different steps that need to happen so that the body can produce ATP. And that's essentially what a lot of the episodes that I've published so far on this podcast have addressed, all the different mechanisms by which we make ATP. So for example, we need to be able to digest, absorb and assimilate our food. That's part of the process of making ATP. We need to have good oxygenation of the body's tissues so that we can get oxygen to the cell to make ATP. We may need certain nutrients so that the biochemical processes by which we make ATP are um, working really well. So there's lots and lots of different things that would interfere with ATP production. And when we consider this concept of the ketogenic diet, what we want to think about is metabolic flexibility. And essentially poor metabolic flexibility is one of the ways in which we may reduce or become less efficient at producing energy in the form of ATP. So metabolic flexibility is really how flexible we are to use different sources of fuel. In this case, carbohydrates or sugars for fuel or fats for fuel. Somebody who's metabolically flexible can use both really well. So if carbohydrates and sugars are available, they'll use those. If fats are available, they'll use those. If there's no food available, they can maybe fast for a period of time or go without food without experiencing any energy crashes or getting overly hungry or dizzy or faint or weak. So those are signs of good metabolic flexibility. Somebody who's metabolically inflexible is usually much more dependent on one fuel source over another. So very often this is carbohydrates and sugars. The reason being in our everyday life, these foods are easily available. They tend to have a longer shelf life. People tend to enjoy them. They have a high degree of palatability. So most people, if they're just reaching for a snack or having something to eat, they're probably always going to, unless they're being really mindful and nutrition conscious, it's very easy to overconsume sugars and carbohydrates. And if somebody is consuming sugars or carbohydrates you know, every three hours, then what's happening is the body is always trying to process those sugars and carbohydrates and there's not so much of a need for processing fats. And what this means is that we become very dominant in the aerobic energy processes, the, the glycolysis energy processes, which burns sugar to make energy, ATP, without the need for oxygen. So when we are using, utilizing glycolysis in the cell to burn sugar to make energy, this is a very fast process. We don't need any oxygen, so we don't have to rely on the oxygen transport chain to be working very well. But the yield is low. So one molecule of glucose produces two 
ATP. So that's your anaerobic metabolism. But if we go into aerobic respiration, we can produce 38 molecules of ATP. So that's 19 times more ATP can be produced if we are metabolically flexible. So there's a strong argument there to be metabolically flexible. And if somebody is metabolically inflexible, which means they're primarily using their anaerobic glycolytic energy system and they're just burning through sugars and carbohydrates, it's kind of like a use it or lose it situation. If we're not challenging our body to use aerobic respiration, to use and burn fats as a fuel source, then we just become less efficient at doing that. But then we miss out on this very efficient system which can produce a lot of ATP. In this kind of scenario, if somebody has poor metabolic flexibility, what that means is they're quite overly reliant on sugar as a fuel source, which means they're probably eating a lot of carbohydrates, they're more, or should I even say not necessarily a lot of carbohydrates, maybe just too much for their unique expenditure. And this can be the challenge when somebody experiences fatigue because because they're tired, they're not moving their body as much anymore, they're not exercising as much anymore, they may be quite sedentary, they may be losing muscle mass, and therefore their carbohydrate requirements go down. But there can also be an emotional component to food, maybe they're feeling emotional about being unwell and they may be comfort eating. So there's this decreased carbohydrate requirement coupled perhaps with the same or even an increased carbohydrate consumption. And that can result in increasing levels of insulin being produced with each meal. Too much carbohydrate is being consumed, so the body is producing more and more insulin to help the body cope with that carbohydrate load. And then insulin levels over time can increase inflammation, insulin levels over time can increase histamine, insulin levels over time can um, facilitate more weight gain, and then that in itself starts to increase inflammation in the body. And essentially this person becomes more carbohydrate dependent and the cycle perpetuates itself. And then we obviously have the knock-on effect of blood sugar highs and lows, which are then impacting energy levels throughout the day and sort of destabilizing the system, possibly even destabilizing the nervous system as well. Blood sugar stability and metabolic flexibility are a really important foundation for health generally, and I would also argue for energy and for fatigue recovery. So you can listen to the blood sugar episode that I recorded, I think it's episode 10, if you'd like to dive into the world of blood sugar in a little bit more detail. But for the purposes of today, what I will just say is that if your clinical pictures, shall we call it, fits that of somebody who is metabolically inflexible, then a ketogenic diet or even just a lower carbohydrate diet could be a therapeutic tool that you could use to restore metabolic flexibility in your system 
And as you restore metabolic flexibility, you'll likely restore blood sugar stability. You'll take that pressure off of the nervous system. You'll be able to perhaps manage inflammation a little bit better. Sleep may improve. And of course, we get that added benefit of having a much healthier aerobic metabolism, which means we can produce more ATP, the 38 ATP versus the 2 ATP. If you are already eating well, your metabolic flexibility is good, you have no issues with your blood sugar swinging between high and low, is there going to be any therapeutic benefit to doing a ketogenic diet? Maybe a little bit in terms of managing inflammation, I don't know, but you wouldn't probably be the top candidate for benefiting from the ketogenic diet. And in some cases, eating too low carbohydrate when you don't actually need to could have negative side effects and it could start to actually cause um, instability and more stress on the system. And then that could potentially be counterproductive to fatigue recovery. The next question is, you understand the benefits, you understand how this could be something that's beneficial generally for energy production and health. How do you know if this is the next step for you, if this is something that you should specifically try? Obviously, this is a podcast. Please don't take this as medical advice, but there are some things that you can start to explore if you're considering the ketogenic diet. The first thing I like to do with my clients is just to look at their symptoms. So there's warning signs that would suggest that their metabolic flexibility is poor. That could be things like dependence on carbohydrates, really struggling to um, go without carbohydrates. It could be cravings, they crave carbohydrates. could be energy crashes during the day. Episodes of hypoglycemia, so maybe starting to feel dizzy, starting to feel tired, losing cognitive function, and then that improves once they've eaten. There could be sleep disturbances. There's a multiple different things that would suggest perhaps that somebody is metabolically inflexible. They wouldn't be able to fast. They might get a little bit hangry just as mealtimes are coming around. Very set in their ways, need to eat at a certain time each day very specific about the foods that they need to have in their diet. These are all signs that somebody could be metabolically inflexible. And then we could maybe use some testing. So we might look at a HB1AC on their blood work. So that's a measure of average glucose across a three-month period. But remember, if your blood sugar is swinging from high to low, high to low, The average can sometimes look normal because the highs and lows cancel each other out. So I might still dig a little bit deeper, even if HB1AC is normal. But other things that might be flagged on their blood work would be a high HB1AC. Then we would definitely want to consider poor metabolic flexibility. If they had elevated triglycerides, that would be another sort of little flag for me to explore metabolic flexibility. And then... If they've been lucky enough to have a fasting insulin done and that's elevated, we would want to explore metabolic flexibility. But here as well, just to say is that even with all of that blood work, what we don't have is a post-meal blood sugar reading or a post-meal insulin reading. 
It's very difficult to get post-meal insulin because you can't go to a lab after every single meal and have them take your blood. Um, Or maybe you could, but it might be quite expensive. It would get very expensive very quickly. But what we can do is we can measure blood glucose either throughout the day using something like a continuous glucose monitor or we could use a finger prick monitor and be measuring blood glucose after meals, maybe 45 minutes to an hour after a meal and then two hours after a meal. And what we want to see is that blood sugar has sort of come up a little bit because you've just eaten but not too high and then it's stabilized out again a couple of hours after eating. And if that's not happening, then that could be suggestive that a ketogenic diet or lowering the carbohydrate load of the diet could be beneficial. And if you want to dive into this a little bit more, you can listen to the blood sugar monitoring episode. I believe it was episode 10. And I also have the blood sugar mini course on my website, which you can purchase for £49. Um, Put a link in with this episode um, and that can guide you through some of that self-monitoring as well, if it's something you want to do. And then the final thing I just consider is, are there any any contraindications for this person? Is there any reason for them not to pursue the ketogenic diet at this time? Or are there any things that we want to consider to proceed cautiously? Are they a diabetic? Have they had their gallbladder removed? Have they got a history of seizures? Um, Are they pregnant or breastfeeding? So, you know, there's some things we may want to consider as well. So once we've decided that it's appropriate for this person to explore lowering their carbohydrate or following a ketogenic approach, and we've ruled out that there's any sort of red flags that would be counterintuitive to doing so, what do we do next? Well, the first thing we would do is we stabilize the diet. And if you listen to the episode I did on fasting, these recommendations are actually very similar. So the first thing we want to do is just having this person eat three meals a day or if they need a couple of snacks and whatever they need, at least initially to achieve stability. That's the first step. Proteins, fats, carbohydrates, vegetables, breakfast, lunch, dinner. That's how we achieve stability. And so this basically just rules out the fact that erratic eating could be causing some of the disruption that we may be seeing. So we stabilize the diet first and foremost. If that person has been eating snacks, then the next thing we might do is just reduce the meal frequency. So maybe say, if you're having three meals a day and two snacks, what about three meals a day and one snack? And then maybe just three meals a day. And obviously, this is not a rule book. It's not saying you can never snack. It's just saying, if you don't need the snack, let's take it out. Or how can we make the main meals more nourishing and filling so that you don't need to snack? So once we've reduced the meal frequency and we've stabilized the diet, the next thing we want to think about is maybe just looking at that overnight fasted window. And so a good starting point, if someone's not there already, would be a 12-hour fasted window overnight. So that means that if you eat by 8 p.m. on the evening, you don't eat again or consume any calorific drinks until 8 a.m. the next morning. And then we could play around extending that maybe to 13 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours, 16 hours. 
This is something I talk about in the fasting episode, so I won't go into it in too much detail. But even just maintaining the 12 hours is adequate. Remember, the goal is to support this person's metabolic flexibility. And as long as all the signs are showing that they're becoming increasingly metabolically flexible, then we're winning. It's not necessarily about meeting a set criteria. So then once we've got a stable diet, a good fasting window, the next thing we want to do is just start to reduce the carbohydrates in the diet. So we don't have to rip them all out of the diet straight away. We can do this slowly. It might just be replacing more processed carbohydrates with more whole food carbohydrates. And then, for example, you know, if you usually have white rice, you could have brown rice. If you're usually having a lot of bread and pasta, you could have sweet potato, butternut squash, beetroot. So we're slowly transitioning someone through the process. You know, there's always going to be that person who just wants to do it all yesterday and throw themselves in. And if that's what you want to do, fine. But other people need to go a little bit more slowly and have some stepping stones. Really important here that as we're reducing carbohydrates, we're increasing fats, proteins, and fiber because otherwise people tend to feel hungry or they just tend to undereat. Especially if someone is eating a lot of carbohydrate, hopefully by this stage, because we've stabilized the diet, they're not eating as much anyway. But if someone is used to eating a lot of carbohydrate and you just take it all away, they forget to add in other things and then they get hungry and then that's where we may get side effects. You might get dizziness, shaking, headaches, um, more fatigue. So there can be a transition period if we do this too quickly where people can experience what is known as the keto flu. So sort of those body aches and pains as their metabolism is adjusting. So it's really important at this stage that we eat enough and also to support the body with electrolytes. So as your insulin levels decrease, as you're eating less carbohydrate, what you may find is that you lose water. That's why people lose a lot of weight initially when they transition to a low carbohydrate diet because they're losing water weight. And so with water, we also lose minerals. So we want to make sure we're replacing any of the minerals that are potentially being lost. And you can do that with electrolytes and you can do that with bone broth, with some salts added to it. Make sure you're salting your food. You can have cured meats or if you're South African like me, biltong. Um, you can have stock cubes, like soup stock cubes, just as like a hot soup. So you get all the salt from it. You could have olives, you could have pickles. Those are all kind of things that you could have to increase your salt and sodium levels as you are transitioning to this lower carbohydrate diet. And very often that can help to mitigate any of the side effects. So if you're taking a slow, gradual transition, lowering your carbohydrates, and you're supporting your body with good amounts of minerals and electrolytes, that's setting you up for the win. The other thing we may want to consider as well is supporting fat digestion. I run a lot of stool tests with my clients. I see a lot of clients with compromised fat digestion. I suspect from liver and toxin overload and also just generally what's maybe going on in the microbiome. But a lot of my fatigue clients need support with fat digestion. 
I'm a big fan of using Tudka, which is a supplement you can take for supporting fat digestion. So if you notice, for example, your stools are looser, maybe there's sort of like fatty bits floating in the toilet, your stools are more clay colored, lightly colored, they have a tendency to float. Those might all be signs that your liver and gallbladder could use a little bit more support to help with the fat digestion. So that's something that you could do is to take a supplement like Tudka or have bitter type of foods. So rocket, for example, ginger, lemon, those types of things can help with fat digestion. So then how do you actually know if this is working for you? Well, I guess most people probably know because they feel it. They feel the difference. They feel the benefits. They may be just feeling less puffy, less inflamed. They notice their energy is a bit more stable. They're more satiated. They have less cravings, less highs and lows throughout the day, more mental clarity. So those are all signs that whether or not you're actually in ketosis or not, the changes that you're making are working for you. But we can measure ketosis in three ways. So you can use urine testing, so peeing onto a little strip. You can even buy some sort of breath monitors that you breathe into and they'll tell you if you're in ketosis by measuring the ketones on your breath. The most accurate way is to measure blood ketones. And you'll need a finger prick device for this. The one that I use is the Keto Mojo. And so that you do have to order from the US, unfortunately. There might be some stores here in the UK which you can order from, but you'll probably pay a little bit extra. And this is just like a blood sugar monitor. You prick your finger, you measure your ketones on the strip where you drop your blood, and then you'll know if you're in ketosis or not. So here what you're looking for is anything which is 0.5 millimoles per liter is technically in ketosis. When I do longer fasts, I can sometimes get up to about two millimoles per liter, sometimes even 2.5. I think the highest I've ever got was three millimoles per liter. Um, but anything kind of round about 0.5 to 1, 1.2, that's what I would usually get on like a day-to-day -day sort of not, not a big fasting day in terms of my ketones. Less than that, you're probably not producing enough ketones to really get the therapeutic benefits. But there can still be a lot of benefit in lowering your carbohydrates, stabilizing your diets, getting blood sugar control, whether or not you enter into ketosis or not. The other thing that the um, you may want to be aware of is something which is called the GKI, the Glucose Keto Index. So this is when you would divide whatever your blood glucose is by your ketones and then that will give you a number on a scale of one to well, one to nine being in ketosis and then anything nine plus would be out of ketosis. So for example, if my blood glucose was 4.5 and my ketones were one, my GKI would be 4.5, which is quite a high level of ketosis. So anything from about um, kind of a number from one to three would be a very high level of ketosis. 
And this is therapeutic for things like cancer, for epilepsy, for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, and any kind of chronic inflammatory diseases. Then a GKI glucoketo index of three to six would be moderate. And this is for people with diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic or endocrine disorders. So if we're looking at improving metabolic flexibility, three to six would probably be a good range. If you need a lot more therapeutic benefit, then one to three would be ideal. And then six to nine would be a low level of ketosis. So this is ideal just for sort of health or a little bit of weight loss, but you're maybe not going to see as much therapeutic benefit. So again, you don't necessarily have to be measuring your GKI or obsessing about it, but it's just useful to have that information. And typically what I would find is kind of day to day, I'm probably in that three to six range some days a little bit more in that six to nine range or different times of the day, it might be a little bit more in that six to nine range. But if I did a long overnight fast then or a 24-hour fast, then I might be more in that one to three, very, very therapeutic range. I think only once did I ever get below one, which technically should be done under medical supervision. So personally, I thought it might be helpful just for me to share a little bit about my personal journey with the ketogenic diet. It was something that I did as part of my fatigue recovery in conjunction with intermittent fasting and then longer fasts as well. I chose to do it because I was experiencing blood sugar dysregulation and no matter how much I lowered my carbohydrates, I still experienced blood sugar dysregulation and it was only getting my carbohydrates as low as a ketogenic approach that really helped to stabilize things. I will say here as well that I don't think it was it was a combination or that dysregulation was probably a combination of various things for example um, gut health, stress and nervous system dysregulation, mold mycotoxins, overloaded liver etc, inflammation coming from the gut, coming from toxins, all of these things were affecting my blood sugar dysregulation, but the ketogenic diet was something that I could do to manage my blood sugar while addressing all of those other factors. And when I did it, I noticed a difference pretty quickly. Um, I had a little bit of more fatigue and energy dip um, when I transitioned because I was one of those people who did it quite quickly. Um, and probably also wasn't taking as much electrolytes as what I needed to at the time. And when I did it, I noticed a difference in pain. That was probably one of the biggest things. My pain almost completely went away and just generally had more stability, mental clarity throughout the day. And I stayed ketogenic for about three years and um, because that's how long it took me to work on all the pieces of the puzzle that I needed to work on. In hindsight, I could have done it a lot quicker. My hindsight is always 2020. Um, but then now I'm at the stage where I'm going to the gym, I'm lifting heavy weights, I'm doing lots of walking and swimming and Pilates and yoga and hot yoga. And I'm so much more active. And I'm also rebuilding the muscle mass that I lost in my health journey. And so now as I'm doing that, I'm feeling like my body does need more carbohydrate to support the fact that I'm just doing so much more. 
And so I'm kind of reversing the process that I've described to you in that I'm keeping my diet stable, keeping my meal frequency stable, keeping my fasted windows somewhere between 12 and 16 hours. But now I'm gradually increasing the carbs very slowly upwards and I'm taking the fats a little bit by little bit downwards. And as I'm doing this, I'm keeping an eye on my blood sugar. So I'm tracking, well, how much carbohydrate can I handle per meal? And is it different if I've done a workout versus if I've not? And just very slowly getting my body used to having more carbohydrates again. And what I've worked out is about 75 grams of sweet potato is my sweet spot. Interestingly, different foods respond differently or shall I say I respond differently to different foods so sweet potato seems to work really well for me quinoa was working really well for me but then I had COVID and after COVID it just started to give me the worst stomach ache Um, so I've mainly been focusing on sweet potato I did try some butternut squash because we had so many from our allotment this year but the butternut squash just didn't seem to work as well as the sweet potato. So I've mainly been sticking to sweet potato. I have a little bit of seed bread from Heart of Nature, which has got a small amount of oats in it. So there's a little bit of carbs coming from that. If I have, um, if I do a weights workout, I'll usually have a medjool date pre-workout. So there's some carbs coming through that on training days. So it's just a little bit more carbs on training days. And um, then obviously dark chocolate, because what is life without dark chocolate? Um, I'm getting some carbs through from that and then just carbs from veg, especially as we go into winter now, as I'm recording this, things like your broccoli, your Brussels sprouts are actually much higher in carbs versus your lettuce leaves and things like that. So there are some carbs coming through naturally from veg. I track it all on my fitness pal. I just like the data. It doesn't bother me. I don't get obsessive about it. But now I'm kind of sitting between 70 grams of carbs a day and 100 grams of carbs a day compared to being about 50 before. And obviously the source of some of those carbs being a bit more different. And the plan is really to just hold it there um, for the time being. And then if I feel like I have capacity to maybe increase a little bit more, but really, you know, women, especially as we get older and we move towards our late 30s, 40s and beyond, we do have to be mindful of carbohydrate consumption. We don't necessarily need as much as we think. So I don't see, unless I'm really kind of going to town with my training, I don't see myself going too much further past 100 grams per day, maybe like 120 150 um but you know unless I become this sort of serious hectic athlete I don't think I'm going to go into like the 200 plus range in terms of carbohydrate obviously everybody is different everybody has different requirements has different activity levels different things going on with their health so I'm just sharing what I'm doing and what's working for me right now so that is everything I wanted to share with you today. I hope you found this interesting and helpful. Also a reminder that if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. You'll need to do that on iTunes. And um, Leaving reviews helps with the ranking of the podcast, which means that people who want to or need to find this information can get it more easily. And so you leaving a review helps other people who 
who could benefit from this information. Additionally, if you also can share it on your social media with a friend, with someone who may find it interesting, may find it beneficial, I would be forever grateful. And that is everything I wanted to say. I hope you have a lovely day and I'll see you in the next episode.